Season three of Black Belt Voices is brought to you by Southern Bancor. Southern Bancor is one of America's oldest and largest community development financial institutions. Founded to provide underserved communities with access to capital and the wealth building tools needed to grow. On the web at banksouthern.com and southernpartners.org. Listening to the Black Blood Voices Podcast, where we tell stories from and about Black folks down south. These stories honor our history. You know, they didn't have any problem enslaving children their age. So why would you have any problem teaching children that slavery existed and what slavery was really like? Celebrate our culture. Black Southerners are just like none other. I mean, we are just seasoned to perfection, honey. And shape our future. Voting is a form of currency. You have to use it. We, we exist because someone was able to make a way out of no way. Like, that's part of our legacy. And I think food is one way that we, we can think about it. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Black Belt Voices. And happy Black History Month. I'm Adina White. And I'm Kara Wilkins. We're starting a new series of episodes today about Black food culture, which is a very broad topic to tackle. It can be fun and it can be deep. We're excited to share these interviews with you. And we have a couple of different perspectives to share, including restaurant owners, farmers, gardeners. But we're starting with Dr. Reese, an anthropologist. Um, Well, my name is Ashante Reese. I am a professor at the University of Texas at Austin. And home is East Texas. So coming to UT was kind of returning home. Dr. Reese works at the intersection of critical food studies in Black geographies, which for her looks at the role of anti-Blackness in the food system. She's written two books. The first one, Black Food Geographies, shows how critical race studies and food studies are blended. And the other book, which we'll talk about today, is called Black Food Matters, Racial Justice in the Wake of Food Justice. It's a project she takes on with fellow anthropologist, Dr. Hannah Garth. Broadly speaking, Dr. Reese is interested in how Black people interact with food, how we create space around food, And the volume uses food as a lens to understand more about Black life. I have a copy of Black Food Matters. And in the overview of the volume, it says that this book enters two conversations at once. One that concerns the persistent threats to Black life and another that concerns problems produced by the increasingly global and corporatized food system. So there's so much to unpack and a lot of it challenges our existing ways of thinking Yeah, I believe you. It reminds me of, and I think we've talked about this before, um, these High on the Hog series from Netflix, where they took a look at how gentrification in a North Carolina community impacted the local Black farmer and the local Black community. But the larger issue was kind of, to your point, the globalization. you know, people coming in, taking over that town and it leaves out and it doesn't create spaces for traditional black 
food, black farming and those types of things. So, you know, I feel like this is a topic that we've all hopefully are getting a better understanding about. So, Kara, if you're like me, you have a limited understanding of anthropology or is that a bad assumption? Uh, No, that is a correct assumption. (laughs) Yes, I took one intro to anthropology class in college and we did like the little kinship chart thing. And that's really all I remember from it. It was interesting. And Dr. Reese says that one takeaway is that anthropology is is basically the study of humans, but also it's the study of relationships between different people. That makes sense. I see in her bio, she describes herself as a writer first and then an anthropologist. I think that's interesting that she took the route to study Black food. Does she talk about that? Yes. uh, She was actually inspired by the author Zora Neale Hurston, who was also trained in anthropology. That makes sense. Because in the late 1930s, Zora Neale Hurston actually lived in an area called Belle Glade, Florida. Hmm. She was researching African-American folklore in the South for an anthropological fellowship at Bernard College. And if you know anything about Belle Glade, it's a sugarcane community, meaning that most of the people who live there worked in the sugarcane fields. And so if you go to Belle Glade now, there's one long road that drives you through a sugarcane field to get to the actual city. And because of privatization of the farms, A lot of people who grew up working in the sugarcane communities no longer have jobs. And so now Belle Glade has fallen into a little bit of impoverishment. But that is where Zora Neale Hurston got a lot of her inspiration. And I thought that perhaps if I was also trained in anthropology, I could link my love for writing with a similar way that she linked her love for writing with the love for Black people and Black culture. And I thought maybe something about being trained as an anthropologist helped her to see and write um, quite beautifully. And I think um, with a lot of layers about Black folks. So that's how I ended up being or becoming an anthropologist. My specific program was of interest to me because there was at the time a focus on social justice. So it was, it, it attracted a lot of people who were interested in going into the academy, but also people who wanted to do other kinds of activist work outside of the academy. And so it felt like a really good space. Um, So I think there are some ways that anthropology has prepared me for the work that I do. Like I am, I call myself a student of the everyday. I'm very interested, not in the big aha moments, but the very like almost sometimes unnoticeable ways that people are living their lives on a daily basis. And I think anthropology has helped me think about that granular level of the everyday. Dr. Reese told me that food has always been a topic explored in anthropology. She says she has drawn from other disciplines like geographies and Black studies to get a fuller sense of how it is more than a cultural object. No matter where you go, there are people, there are cultures, there are folks trying to create lives um, with each other, but also like struggling to create lives across difference, right? And sometimes those struggles produce power dynamics, which is another thing that I take from being an anthropologist, just being attuned to the ways power flows through food institutions, um, who gets to make the decisions, who doesn't make decisions, um, how does power become so naturalized in a place that people don't think about it? Um, like for example, to bring it to food, how did we get to a point where supermarkets are so vital and important to our food systems that most people don't even think about or question their existence? Those are the kinds of things that I think about um, 
in my work. Dr. Reese made me think in an entirely different way about supermarkets. So grocery stores are a thing that help us all have access to food. But it's interesting to think about the political, cultural, and the social factors that made them the cornerstone of how we get food. Like even the concept of food deserts, like even that as a solution um, is kind of like just centering supermarkets as the be all end all to how we get our food. We do take them for granted. And we've seen how some parts of any town in any city in the United States are favored to build multiple stores with food while others have none. And we also know that a lot of times, to your point about the cultural and social factors, people who live in higher income areas uh, tend to get better food. You know, so you go to the Walmart in the good neighborhood. I'm sure y'all have done that. So you can make sure that you're getting fresh produce and fresh other things. So there's a lot that goes into like your food and your grocery store experience. That's so true. So Maybe along with asking why these nice stores don't exist in certain areas, we should also be asking, why do we depend so much on Whole Foods and Walmart Neighborhood Market and Trader Joe's for our good, healthy foods? And that takes us to food justice, which is the concept that no one should be hungry or underpaid. Food justice simply means that having food is a right. And no one should live without enough food because of economic constraints or social inequalities. So back to a lack of grocery stores or other healthy food options in poor communities. Food justice reframes that as a human rights issue. Dr. Reese says the term started picking up speed around 20 years ago with folks talking about hunger and food insecurity. Our food system shouldn't be exploitative and we shouldn't. And by exploitative, I mean like exploiting people's labor, but also exploiting the earth. Um, that there were people who were interested in addressing sustainability from a very um, uh, justice framework where it was more so thinking about what are the kinds of race, class, gender, ability, um, disparities do we see in the food system and how do we fix them? So, and food justice as a concept has evolved over time. And then there are more people who are using the concept of food sovereignty Um, particularly people who are kind of drawing from indigenous food studies. But food justice has largely now kind of rallied around questions of racial justice. What does the food system have to do with racial justice? But also like, what does it look like for black people to be leading food justice movements to create not only a better food system, but a more, a safer, more sustainable world for black people, which For a lot of us, we assume that if we create a world where Black people are safe, then that is also investing in a world where everyone is safe, Um, just because of the nature of how anti-Blackness works. So, yeah, so food justice, you know, has a lot of different approaches now. but, But I would say a thing that makes something a part of a food justice movement is really the critical analysis and critique of capitalism and the critical analysis and critique of this kind of very individualized notion that we have that individuals should meet their own needs, that that's not necessarily like a societal thing that we should be taking in and creating and thinking thinking about together. Um, so my favorite works on food justice are all, they all have a racial analysis, they have an anti-capitalist analysis. Um, many of them have a labor analysis trying to connect the kinds of exploitation of farm workers, for example, to historical patterns of 
exploitation. And we can take that even back to enslavement, right? That there are all these different ways um, that good food justice analysis to me properly historicizes the current moment to help us understand how we got here. And then hopefully we can build paths towards something different. When it comes to Black food, there are different angles to look at it. And the contributors to Black Food Matters lay them out in this volume. In our conversation with Dr. Reese, I posed a question, what is Black food? And she said, that's a big question. So in Black Food Matters, the volume's 15 contributors talk about Black food from different angles. They talk about the food traditions that are associated with particular Black people in particular areas, such as barbecue. And we won't say who has the best barbecue because I don't want to start any fights. Um, They talk about food insecurity and the ways that people are trying to address food insecurity. And they talk about farming. So there's all these different ways that people are getting at the question. And I think at the heart of it is really the question, what is Black people's relationship to food? And of course, there's many different answers to that question. Um, But I think our book was trying to really think through both inequities that Black people experience with food and also the ways Black folks create and resist and just live and be and like um I'm hesitant to use the word thrive but like I am thinking about the moments when black people really create things out of the least right and I think we all kind of have histories of that we're maybe are connected to histories of that even if they're not immediate you know like they're in our we we exist because someone was able to make a way out of no way like that's part of our legacy and I think food is one way that we we can think about it so I don't think of Black food cultures as being wholly celebratory. I think there are things that we can celebrate, but I also think that there are ways that we think about Black food cultures. It's about thinking about Black folks' relationships to all kinds of formations, institutions, policies, each other, land, et cetera, et cetera. Black Food Matters is a comprehensive look at Black food culture, and it centers Blackness. It's likely the first of its kind. Dr. Reese is very proud of it, and we think it's great, too. She's also working to expand her future research to include the entire Black diaspora. Dr. Reese recommends some texts for our listeners who are interested in learning more about Black food studies. We'll stick them in the show notes. They include, and I just love these titles, Building Houses Out of Chicken Legs by Psyche A. williams Forson and Dethroning the Deceitful Pork Chop, a collection of essays that basically interrogate the concept of soul food. And I think this is the other thing that was so it's so good about our volume, which is a complement to volumes like Dethroning the Deceitful Pork Chop, which is that our volume wasn't centering on soul food, which is such a quintessential way that people think about Black food. And we wanted to not, not do that. Right? Like we wanted to like, yes, there are a couple of chapters that actually deal, deal with or think about soul food, but we wanted to be clear that that is not the only way to think about Black people's relationship to food. And so I'm going to jump ahead to our question about soul food, because, um, of course, we try to focus on we try to center black southerners in our storytelling. And, you know, um, so we ask a call and response thing at the end. And one of the questions is, what's your favorite soul food dish? And, you know, the risk of losing your black card, what's one you can live without? And then so let's just talk about <laughs> and we will ask you that soon. <laughs> and so I was like, it was going to be weird asking her this because she, she knows like the big picture. But anyway, um, this kind of talk to us about like what constitutes soul food and, and just like, and also kind of the co-opting of it because like, and you know, a lot of white folks will talk about, you know, around here, 
that's not only for black folks. That's we ate that growing up. So just kind of like, um, what are some of the myths and misconceptions about soul food? Because I think in one part of the book it says, um, the narrative that the foods we eat were were trash and scraps that the white folks threw out is just not all the way true. And I always thought like, oh well, that's how chitlins became a delicacy because so just talk about the myths and the misconceptions around soul food and, and why we should think of black food more expansively than that. Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing that I would say is I love Tony Tipton Martin's work because part of what she's also done is remind us that there, as long as there have been black people and particularly as long as there have been black people in the U S there have been black chefs and other kind of culinary traditions that we also need to be looking towards. So I think that's one, one thing that I, I want to lift up that like, um, Whenever we see that there is a singular narrative about a diverse people, I think we should pause and we should question that singular narrative, not to suggest that that narrative is not is 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 unimportant because it's important for a reason and that there might be other lesser known narratives that we should be also listening for. But I think another um, misconception is that soul food is somehow inherently unhealthy. And part of the reasons why that is a misconception that I like to highlight is that when we say that any people's cuisine is inherently unhealthy, what we're also doing is letting corporations off the hook. That's not the only problem, but like if we talk about soul food leads to high blood pressure, for example, um, first of all, I think we might need to think about how things are manufactured, right? as like we there are lots of processes that happen before someone decides to prepare a dish and cook it the starting point for a lot of conversations around black people and healthiness is that there's something wrong with black people black people and i think that is the problem that cannot be the starting point when having conversations about health and healthiness because you then already assume that black people need to be made over in some kind of way The other thing I like to point out about soul food is most of us, even our grandparents, don't eat like the big, heavy Sunday dinner that is associated with soul food every day. We just don't, you know. Um, And so I think that leaves room for like, if we're not eating that, what are the other things that people are eating? And so that's another avenue to be to be thinking about. When we say this topic is deep, we weren't kidding. Dr. Reese mentioned the images that we think of for soul food cooking. There's a gender component. It's usually black mamas and aunties with (laughs) large upper arms. (laughs) You know what I mean, Carrie? Like when you see like someone's arm in a picture, like, oh, she can cook. Yeah. I have an image right now in my mind and I'm pretty sure it's exactly what you're Yes. It's sweating over a stove. Um, And there are a few more authors she mentioned who do a deep dive into soul food. Such as the Jemima Code by award-winning journalist and food historian, Tony Tipton-Martin. Also, Dr. Jessica Kenyatta Walker's work, Her Kitchen is the World, Black Women in the Culture of Soul Food. And Adrian Miller has a book called Soul Food, which gives the backstory of the cuisine. And in that book, he tracks the decline of soul food restaurants in the United States. And part of that decline was associated with health narratives. But I also think one of the things that would be interesting to look at, and I'm sure there are people who look at this, is of the remaining soul food restaurants, particularly the ones that are well known and like popular, who owns them? You know, 
who owns them and where did they get their recipes from? Who did they get their recipes from? Not where, who did they get their recipes from? Um, and, you know, I think there's a reason why Southerners, stick, Black Southerners in particular, stick to soul food as a narrative, as, you know, particular kind of cuisine, because people all over are always trying to disparage Black people in the South. I don't understand it, right? <laughs> and, and then there's, there's this thing that we can say we create it. I get that. I actually get that being a thing, right? I get why people have the arguments between what's the difference between Southern food and soul food. I understand why people have those arguments. Um, Black Southerners want something to claim and deserve a lot of claim, right? I think we get disparaged too much. I don't think we get the kind of credit that we should um, for all that we contribute to Black culture in the U.S. It matters to me, I'll say to me, I think it matters who produces food. And I think it matters where that knowledge comes from, because as we know in Black Food Matters, it is not uncommon for Black people's recipes and knowledge to be stolen and then used in restaurants that end up having some kind of critical acclaim. Which is interesting because you've now seen a resurgence of soul food, but not with Black faces behind it. And this can be frustrating because I think, you know, we've all experienced or many people have probably experienced going into a restaurant and seeing something that is traditionally Black, collard greens, Black eyed peas, you know, chicken with a with a spin on it and being charged $50 a plate (laughs) again for something that is traditionally ours. And it's the culture, the credit is not going back to um, some of our Black chefs and some of our folks who are uh, still working in the culinary community, but they're not getting the acknowledgement that they should be getting. So, Adina, thinking about this, it can be overwhelming from the way we frame the problem and even thinking about how much of it is so ingrained. You're right. And even beyond what we just talked about, as we mentioned earlier, this book is just expansive and the chapters are all about different, different things. But one thing you're not going to find in Black Food Matters, you're not going to find some, some prescribed solutions. They're, they're not here to give us solutions to these problems. But Dr. Reese did talk about where to start. But I think people are actually trying to address something that's so big, right? Like this is where food justice movements come in. Organizations like the Black Dirt Collective, which um, are as a collective of Black growers and land stewards or the National Black Food and Justice Alliance, which is an alliance of several, I don't even remember how many at this point, organizations were all trying to think through this question of sustaining Black lives through food. And so I think a lot of the things that I admire are local, local-ish, but definitely grassroots movements that are trying to meet people's everyday needs and not waiting on the state to make any different kinds of choices around funding, et cetera. Like we know, for example, like Biden just signed what is referred to as the largest and most historic increase in SNAP benefits. Um, And I would never say that increasing SNAP benefits is wrong. I think that's a 
you know, important thing. I think this is what government should be doing, taking care of its citizens. And when you look at the legislation more closely, it'll increase SNAP benefits for individual families or households by less than $40 a month. Like that's not even a bag of groceries, you know, for most people. So in other words, I think that there is always a gap between what the state is doing or willing to do and what people actually need. And so there are lots of organizations that feel feel these needs Um, and do so from a perspective that is like, this isn't just about charity. This is about preserving people's dignity and you have a right to live. And you should expect that your government, your neighbors, your community will take care of you. We should expect that. I should expect to take care of my community and my neighbors and care for them, right? And I think food is such a powerful way to, um, to do that because there's so much meaning attached to food. There's so much sharing and care. And there's also, you know, not so good things too. But I think on the positive side, people can... Um, there's nothing like, you know, being able to help or provide something for someone. Um, and it's not just that they get get their needs met that they feel good about, but the fact that you treated them like an actual whole person. So, you know, the orgs that I follow, I love watching them. Like they do advocacy work, they do policy work, they do all these things. Um, but the best part of their work to me is the relational work like how they relate to people and like because that's part of the transformation of society too capitalism could die tomorrow and if we haven't done the work to figure out how to relate to each other then we'll just build something else harmful in this place so switching gears to the land and to farming I asked Dr. Reese about the chapter in the volume by fellow anthropologist, Dr. Jillian Richards-Greaves on the intersection of politics and food security. So in that chapter, Dr. Richards-Greaves talks about how Black residents practice self-sufficiency through gardening and through raising farm animals. I think the thing that has been interesting and in some ways beautiful to watch during the course of the pandemic is seeing so many more Black people, especially young Black people, take up gardening even if it's just on their balconies, for example, as a hobby, as something to be doing. Interesting. And I will tell you, I have friends who live in more urban communities like New York or Baltimore, and I have seen kind of a rise in those pocket gardens. So where Mm -hmm. communities can come and people can, um, people can come and learn about agriculture, but in a urban setting. And it's also interesting because usually it's the older people who will start the garden and then young people come and learn about it. And so it really has like a two generation approach too, because it's the older people teaching about farming and how to make tomatoes and how to, you know, grow some of these things. So again, those communities can be self-sufficient, particularly if they're in kind of a food desert area. That's so cool. And she mentioned part of the spark for what could have been uh, people doing these things on their own is that seeing that food may not always be at the ready in grocery stores. Like we saw that at the start of the pandemic. We're seeing it now with the supply chain issues, like with different things that you just can't get. I think cream cheese is we have a shortage on cream cheese right now, which is crazy. Yep. (laughs) And uh, my dad has a colleague who started raising chickens as a result of the pandemic. So now he has so many eggs that he gives away dozens at a time to his coworkers. And my mom and dad have always had a garden in their backyard. 
and it produces so much sometimes that, you know, that's another thing they give away to people because you can't eat it all yourselves. And so it's just really neat to see how, you know, people can take care of each other through, through food. You know, there's the food aspect, but there's a deep spiritual aspect to growing things and to having a, having, to have a relationship with things that are growing, that are non-human, I think is a really spiritual process. Um, and I think akin to some of our indigenous uh, kin, for some people, land is sacred. You know, land is a living spiritual being that we should not own, but perhaps we can be in good relationship with and we can be good stewards of. And so like the work I'm most inspired by are people who are trying to be good stewards of land as a resource, trying to have a non-exploitative relationship to land as a resource. Um, And, you know, I think Black people obviously have complicated histories with farming if we think about, especially in the South and think about enslavement, et cetera, et cetera. And that's not the only history we have, right? Um, even, Even during enslavement, some people cultivated their own plots, their own gardens outside of like the plantation fields, right? And I think those practices of cultivating even on a small level, I always think of like, I say that there are two discourses about freedom. Like there's the big F, capital F freedom. And then there are these small F freedoms that we are pursuing on a daily basis. That's how I think about these plots. That's how I think about people who garden on their balconies or contribute to community gardens. There is something that we learn through those processes. And I do think that there are freedoms that we explore through those kinds of processes. Um, and also, farmers are some of the coolest people. I mean, if you're not friends with any farmers, you should get to some farmer friends. They're like, they're like, you know, I learn a lot from my friends. Like, I learn literal skills from farmers. But I think farming as, um, I don't want to romanticize farming as a way of life because it's hard. Farm Farming is hard work. And I think that there's something beautiful and, and satisfying about how many farmers, and of course I'm thinking about black farmers because those are the only farmers that I know think about the work that they do. Um, I think it becomes a way of life, but mostly I think it becomes a way of seeing the world that I think we could all learn from. Growing, living, dying, um, improvising, regrouping, you know, revitalize. Like there's so many lessons I think that farmers can teach us about how to relate to the world and life and like surrendering, like hard work. Like there's so many things I think that I get when I talk to farmers or read about farmers. Dr. Reese mentioned she doesn't think land should be owned, but since it is, it is of course contributed to food inequity simply because Black people don't get as much due to our dark history and long-lasting structural racism. And as Dr. Reese puts it, white folks have been stealing land as long as Black people have been able to own it. And we all know that we are on Native land, so that goes back to her to the idea she mentioned that land shouldn't even be owned. So that's a whole other issue there. And even in recent history, beyond individuals stealing it, you had government entities that were discriminating against Black people to prevent them from owning it. You know, it's hard to know how that impacts food 
and food access because we don't know what people or their heirs would have done with this land, right? We just kind of don't know. But I do think, you know, following along the lines of like Malcolm X would always say, there's never going to be any more land. Um, land is a valuable commodity in this country. Land shouldn't be a commodity. I want to say say that. But I also imagine what that might have meant for families who hadn't lost their land or had their land taken or stolen from them, what that would have meant for their, their family's well-being, if nothing else. Even if these, these farms or this land hadn't contributed to the food system, it contributed to somebody's well-being. Land is always contested. It's always something that is Land is valuable and everyone knows it. And particularly like corporations and people in power will do all that they can to get more land. I mean, I don't know if people have read this, but like Bill Gates over the last several years has been acquiring more and more farmland in the U.S. and otherwise. Now, why would someone who don't know shit about farming be buying up a bunch of farmland, right? Buying land is a form of control. Owning land is a form of control. You own land, you own, you get to control a lot of things. And so I think that's just one way. I mean, that's broadly, it's not specific to food production, but I think the broader reality is we need people. And again, I'm just restating that I don't believe anyone should own land. No one should own the earth. But under this particular political formation, if people are going to own the earth, we need the right people to be owning the earth. We need the right people to be owning plots of land, people who will think like creatively and relationally and expansively around what it means to be a good steward of what they own. And being a good steward of what someone owns can't only be about profit. Well, now we get into these call and response questions. And it's so it's so weird because like we had this deep conversation and now we're going to get kind of kind of <laughs> shallow and surface level, but it's all good. It'll be fun. So um do you consider yourself Southern as a Texan? Because I know sometimes Texans kind of go either way, they're like they're Texans. Ugh. Yes, I do. I do. And I do not understand people who don't. Okay. But I'm also, I should say I'm also from East Texas, which I think matters because. Texas has so many different cultures across the state, mm-hmm. but East Texas feels more like like the South, deep, deep South to me. Oh, okay. So that being said, what does being Black and Southern mean to you? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. Like, I can't think of any other way to be that I would want to be Black. You know, like I like I like being Southern. I think being Southern has meant that I have a deep appreciation for um, space and freedom and community. And maybe I should specify and say being a rural born Southern person, right? I think my earliest years, I got a glimpse of what freedom can mean because I had the space to roam and to be and um, I wasn't cramped, you know? So I think that really mattered. Um, I have never considered being anything but Black. So I don't know how to answer. I, I like being a black person. I love being a black person. I love black people. So, you know, I think just being black for me is always drenched in creativity and possibility. Yes, there's struggle. Um, Yes, there's disappointment and there's heartbreak. And I put my money on black people any day. 
Love that. So what do you wish people knew or understood about the South? First of all, I think many people have stereotypes about the South and they have no idea what they're talking about. They're just regurgitating what they heard from somebody else. And so I guess my invitation to people who know nothing about the South is always come and see. And also to just know that the South is also as diverse as every other place that we would would consider. Right. So so more of an invitation. Just come and see. What do you love most about living in the South? What I love most right now about living in Austin, Texas, is tacos. (laughs) um cost of living has been pretty good i also love living in places where there are high concentrations of black people austin notwithstanding there's not a high concentration of black people but generally i've spent most of my time in the south and it's been nice to always be able to be around black folks Mm. and it's a tuesday so are you having tacos tonight on taco tuesday I am. I am having maybe tacos. Maybe we're gonna have tacos tonight. Um, but I'm actually not in Austin. I'm in Mexico. So, um, oh wow, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I'll have tacos, but they won't be like right. tacos. Oh cool. Um, so if you could change one thing about the South, what would it be? Uh, I think we need better transportation infrastructure. There are too many cars on the road always. So I wish there was more public transportation. Mm, very good answer. Um, fill in the blank. I would love to sip sweet tea on the front porch with blank. Oh my gosh. Anyone? Okay. Living living or dead? Anyone. Okay. Whoever. Like some people so listen, do both. Someone who's dead, always, always, always. I would just love to sit and learn from Zora Neale Hurston. I feel like she has stories. She would have had stories for days and I would have been here for it. Living, I would love to sit and sip sweet tea on the porch with Tressy McMillan Cotton. She is yes. hilarious and brilliant. And I would love to spend some like non-online time with her. Oh yeah, she is. Like, yeah, she's awesome. I mean, just based on my online seeing her stuff. Like, I don't know. She doesn't know who I am, but I like reading her stuff. Um, so what's your favorite black and or southern saying? My favorite black inner southerner saying oh yeah black and or southern like however black and or southern yeah. saying oh i don't know tamana is there something that i say a lot that sounds real black or real southern <laughs> what was it she says i'm always saying baby it's true <laughs> it's true and i and i was like I always draw out shit. I'm like, shit. <laughs> that's, that's, I like that. Yeah. I like with the baby with the claps. I like how you, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, those are good ones. I mean, you can really, I mean, I can see that being a good, that's a good story. If you combine those two, there's a good story that's going to follow that every time. <laughs> yeah. Um, so here we go. What's your favorite soul food dish? And at the risk of losing your black card, what's one soul food dish you could live without? Okay. So listen. This is not hard for me about what I can live without. Okra. I fucking hate okra. I'm sorry to all the people who like love that slimy, slimy thing. I do not like okra. I do not want it prepared in any kind of way. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> so no okra. Um, my favorite soul food. Can I, can I just say my favorite plate? I feel like I can't oh, think yeah. about soul food as singular plate, items. Yeah. Okay. So my 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 plate would have fried chicken, leg or wing, collard greens, macaroni and cheese. 
I'd be fine with that. I would add other stuff if I had the option, but that would be a complete plate for me. Cornbread with the collard greens or no? Don't eat any cornbread. Nope. Okay. Can your stuff touch? Some people have are particular about their stuff not touching. No, it's totally fine. It all yeah. mixes together. Yeah. 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 Mine, mine can touch. They can all, the juices can, <laughs> the, the greens juice can go here with the chicken. I don't care. Okay. So okra, that's, that's fascinating. Okay. Yeah, no okra. No, no, no okra. Sorry. I just, oof. okay. So there's this one time, there's this one place in Atlanta called West Egg Cafe and their shrimp and grits. They have like a sliver of fried okra on top. And that's the only time I ever had a piece of okra that didn't make me gag. <laughs> so it's fine. I mean, that's funny. Yeah. I mean, really, it is very slimy, those pods or something else. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so uh, what's something awesome that's happened in your life recently? Well, uh, I'm in Mexico. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am on research leave for this academic year, which allows me to be more flexible and, and location independent. So I'm very grateful to be here, spending time with one of my really, really good friends who lives here. So that feels like the most awesome thing right now. We'd like to thank Dr. Shante Reese for sharing some of her wisdom and expertise with us about Black food. Woo, it's good stuff. Yeah, we told you guys it'd be a lot. But if you'd like to dig even deeper, we have a list of some of the readings she recommended in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so others can find us. You can also listen to the Black Belt Voices podcast on most streaming platforms, including Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and NPR One. This episode was edited by Katrina Dupins and Prentice Dupins Jr. with music composed by Prentice Dupins Jr. Black Belt Voices is a production of Black Belt Media, LLC. Thanks again to Southern Bank Corps for underwriting our third season. Be sure to follow Black Belt Voices on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Black Belt Voices and visit blackbeltvoices.com. We'll see you in a couple of weeks.